This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, the Ontario Energy Minister is uh, is asking Ontario utility companies to stop winter hydro uh, disconnections. Uh, hydro One has already done this. Uh, they don't uh, do this any longer. Um, this just seems absolutely bizarre to me in the sense that, um, yeah, of, of course, they shouldn't be disconnecting people in the middle of winter. But again, th- this doesn't solve the problem of high utility rates and the fact that no one can afford them. Uh, Parker Galan is with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. He is with us now. Hello, Parker. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. And you? Good. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Your thoughts on this? I mean, this drives me nuts. Is this just not smoke and more smoke and mirrors? Oh, it is. And, and of course, those uh, uh, local distribution companies that will be, you know, uh, not cutting people off or disconnecting will will have to face uh, some basically allowance for, you know, the bad debts. So they're going to have to write a lot of that money off and or or they're going to have to go in and get higher rates for distribution so they can recover it from the rest of us. So, I mean, this is just kind of, you know, moving the money around, if you will, and taking more out of the people that are still paying their bills. I mean, it's just, you know, madness as far as I'm concerned. And, of course, I, we talked about the Ontario Electricity Support Program, which is, you know, uh, within uh, that, the energy sector. And the rest of us that are paying our bills are picking up the cost of that. And that's something like $200 million a year. So, you know, last year there was... I think, uh, if memory serves me right, there was about 176 million bucks outstanding that was in arrears at the end of 2015. Uh, you know, the numbers for 2016 won't be out for a long time, uh, but that's sort of an indication that if it's 176 million bucks, that's another 176 million dollars that's going to be written off that we're going to. The rest of us are going to have to chip in and pay for it. Hmm. Uh, the energy minister uh, acknowledged that uh, the government had done, a, quote, a very poor job of communicating the reasons behind the rise in on t- in hydro rates and on programs for low-income families to get assistance. Do you buy that? No. <laughs> they have, it's been pretty obvious what the reasons are, and I think a they, lot They've of done a very poor job of communicating. They're doing their very best to hide the damn reasons. Like, yeah, they, exactly. they, they won't even explain the global adjustment, yet, you know, they're saying, like, how can they sit there and, you know, again, they're starting to sound like Trump. They're, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Oh, yeah, exactly. They're, they're you know, throwing out alternate facts, if you will. Yeah. yeah. No, it's uh, ridiculous what they've done with the, uh, the sector. I mean, uh, you know, we're spilling, spilling hydro, we're, you know, uh, curtailing wind, we're paying for all that in our energy bills. I mean, that's all adding up to hundreds of millions of dollars every year. And, you know, they got to collect it from somebody, so they raise the rates. And, you know, they're driving more people into energy poverty as they raise those rates. Uh, they haven't figured it out, though. Uh, hopefully we're going to have him, uh, Glenn Tebow, on the air uh, by the end of the show at about 2.30. Um, and, and I'm going to ask him, uh, you know, a very poor job of communicating the reasons behind rates. Does this sound like they will explain the global adjustment and tell everybody where it all goes? Uh, you know, my view is that if they try to explain that global adjustment, they, uh, the bills we'll be getting in the mail will be four or five pages long. Yeah. And they won't do an adequate job of, of telling us. As an example, we pay for MET stations that are up beside the wind turbine developments. 
you know, why are why are we paying, you know, for the MET stations that measure whether or not those wind companies are producing wind or not because they have to pay them when they're curtailed? Crazy. They've really, uh, I mean, everything that they've done so far has done nothing but cloud the issue. We probably have the most complex uh, electricity system in the world. Uh, And he goes on to say that. He says, quote, people don't understand it. Not only are the bills confusing, so is the system. Yep. Yeah. So, again, you know, uh, what's the solution? Well, you know, I think a lot of people have made very sound recommendations to him. Uh, I was just reading uh, a couple of days ago, I read the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers did a submission as to what they think should be done. And one of the things they're recommending right away is that we cannot absorb any more solar or wind uh, generation yeah. into Ontario's electricity system. It's it's jeopardizing the system. It's raising the costs, uh, all of those things. So, And everybody else has told them the same thing. They've got to cancel whatever contracts they can cancel right away to stop the growth and the pricing and they've got to stop spending money, as an example, on, you know, conservation. That's $400 million a year they, they throw at conservation. Maybe they need to look at the pricing of the time of use. You know, they've got to adjust that. So maybe we should be consuming more instead of trying to conserve. And that, that way we'd absorb some of those costs that we're just, you know, basically paying for now but getting no value from. How do you simplify this system? Is that even possible, Parker? Well, I think it's going to take um, a decade at least to simplify it because of what they've done. And, um, you know, as I said, there's some social programs built into the electricity system that really shouldn't be part of the electricity system. They should be allocated to community and social services or some other uh, area rather than being part of that. So, I mean, they can get rid of some of those things. They can make life a little bit simpler, but as I said, you know, it'll take us a good decade, I think, to get out of the mess they've they've made. Are they still avoiding the obvious? Are they getting closer, uh, Parker, to, uh, you know, perhaps um, taking some of those recommendations you were talking about earlier? I hope so, but uh, we haven't seen the evidence. All we've seen is, as I said, is them moving the, you know, the peanut underneath the shell around and, um, you know, taking money from, as an example, the 8% that reduction we got, uh, money is going to come out of the taxpayers' pockets instead of the uh, uh, ratepayers' pockets. So that's just, you know, shuffling the, the deck chairs, if you will. There really isn't any more wiggle room, though, is there? I mean, how, how you know, once you, are, w- once you have rearranged the shells, you can only do that so many times. No, that's right. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, the peanut disappears completely, yeah. and you're not even, you know, moving it around. It's, uh, you know, there's there's some good recommendations, as I say, that have been made under this long-term energy plan that will slow the, the increase down or even stop it. Uh, and um, I, I think they've got to pay attention to that. If they don't, then, you know, we're just, you know, going to see our rates continue to go up. Uh, do you think the Green Energy Act will still be around by the time the next election rolls around, or will it be repackaged, renamed, rebranded? I mean, it's going to. I mean, I'm surprised they haven't. I'm surprised they haven't the done that yet. Party to sort of say we want to rescind the act because they brought it in, 
and they've lived by it now for, what, 13 years? And by the time the election comes, it'll be even longer. So I, you know, if they do anything, they may modify the act to, to reduce the amount of renewable energy that we need on the grid. But I can't see them just sort of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Are you surprised they haven't rebranded this thing by now? Well, yeah. You they, know, we're going to scrap it? The, um, you know, the global adjustment used to be called the provincial benefit, right? So, yeah. So, you know, maybe they'll try rebranding it and calling it something else. Instead of great, I know Green Energy Act, they'll call it the Great Energy Act or something. Yeah, I, I mean, like I, I'm guessing that they will repackage this some way before the next election. Yeah, no, that's yeah. I mean, that's been atypical of what what we've seen in the past. So, yeah, I'm sure they will. Uh, now, does the energy minister have any control over uh, the utilities turning off and on people's power? No, yeah. uh, because. The basically, utilities, or most of the utilities, except for Hydro One, uh, are owned by municipalities uh, to a great extent. There's a couple of private um, ones as well. So they would have to basically, you know, uh, run roughshod over the municipal acts in order to, uh, you know, tell them they can't, right. you know, disconnect. So that's why he said he's asked them to do that, not uh, told them. Well, obviously, there uh, has this been that much of an issue in the past, or is it just since these rising un- uh, rising electricity rates that this has even become an issue? Oh, it's it's the rising electricity rates that that have uh, driven people to energy poverty and driven people to the point where, you know, if they pay the electricity bill, they won't be able to, you know, buy food for their 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 children, you know, or for themselves. That's what it, what it you know the stage it's reached at, especially. You know that twelve, ten, or twelve percent of the people that still heat their homes or their apartments, uh, you know, with electric baseboard heating. Yeah. Now those people are, you know, look at bills uh, in the winter months that are, you know, anywhere from sort of six hundred dollars up to a thousand dollars for a month. You know, if you take that kind of money out of people that are living, if you will, you know, on a day-to-day basis, if you take that money out of their pockets, they've got to give up something else and. You know, it might be food. Uh, you know, it might be not paying their rent. Uh, you know, there's a whole stack of, of bad options that are only available to them, and that's that's a problem. About 60,000 customers had their electricity disconnected for non-payment last year. Uh, do we have any numbers or how that compares to years in the past? No. Um, I mean, uh, the... Uh, I think it was Global News that finally forced that information out. Yeah. And uh, I have never seen anything in the past, you know, beyond the 2015 numbers, the 60,000, um, that says, you know, it was a lot. Um, now, I have been in touch with some of the uh, charitable agencies, and they say that, you know, the growth in the number of people coming in and asking for money and help and paying their electricity bills has really escalated. But again, there's no there's no association that sort of gathers, gathers all that information and, you know, spits it out in some kind of a press release. Or, you mean with all the different branches we have for uh, handling our electricity system in some form, we don't have somebody who can do that? No, uh, <laughs> apparently we don't. At least uh, if we do, it's, it's uh, kept hidden, if you will. Um, so uh, the energy minister, Glenn Tebow, has written a letter to these companies telling them not to do this. Where do you think that goes? Well, I think 
logically, most of them will comply with his request. Um, I mean, I, I read just read one article in Sudbury saying, you know, the local uh, PUC, the Public Utility Commission up there, is already, as of the day he, they got the letter, they've enacted, uh, you know, the no disconnect uh, uh, process. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the other LDCs have already uh, said that they weren't going to disconnect anybody this year. And, in fact, I think Hydro One said they reconnected, yeah. I think, 1,400 um, households that they had disconnected. So, you know, some of them are completely reversing themselves and uh, not charging the you know, ridiculous reconnection rates that they have been charging. I mean, some of them are charging $300 to reconnect people. You know, so it's uh, it, it's 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 amazing that uh, Glenn Tebow didn't bring this up when uh, Hydro One announced that they were going to reconnect those people, as opposed to you know the end of uh, February, yes, middle of February. I, I don't know why, um, you know, but maybe he thought, you know, he he could just ignore it and uh, yeah. you know not have to, you know, sort of go public, if you will, with it because going public, of course. You know, makes the electricity, you know, keeps it up there at the number one issue that voters are concerned about. Yeah, good point. Parker Galan is with us, Vice President of Warden Concerns Ontario. Uh, the Ontario Energy Minister, Glenn Tebow, announcing he's asked Ontario utility companies to stop winter disconnections. Uh, as always, Parker, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I'm going I'm to listen at 2.30 when you get Mr. Tebow on. Yeah, he's, uh, we're waiting, awaiting confirmation at this point, but it does look good. Apparently, we're just waiting numbers. So at 2.30, just after the 2.30 news, he'll be on. Thanks again, Parker. Okay, thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right. Uh, Donald Trump is saying that he's ready to introduce a brand new executive order on immigration next week. Uh, to which the the, uh, Attorney General of Washington State said that the government was conceding defeat. In other words, they know this isn't going to go very far in the next uh, level of of court, so why even continue with it? So it looks like they're going to scrap it and come up with a new one that perhaps is a little bit better researched than this one. Uh, To talk more about all of this, Emily Gilbert is with us, Associate Professor, University of Toronto, and with us now. Hello, Emily. How are you today? Uh, Hello. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. your thoughts. So first of all, surprised that they've decided to make this move? No, not really. I mean, I think Trump uh, seems to be determined to try and go ahead with implementing some kind of ban or what he's also called extreme vetting. And so I think he's looking for ways to do so. And rather than uh, get dragged through the courts, I think the, his administration is looking for other ways and tools that they can do this in um, uh, a maybe more strategic and more legal way. Uh, so I'm not surprised, although I'm uh, not pleased by it either. I think um, I think this is really showing a bad side of the, the Trump administration. Uh, do you agree with the uh, Attorney General in Washington, Bob Ferguson, saying that this is conceding defeat? No, I don't think it's defeat. I mean, I think they uh, it's defeat around the first executive order for sure, but I don't think it's Trump um, saying, you know, he's lost and he's not going to try and do this in some other kind of way. So uh, it may be that this battle um, is a defeat, but the, the longer war to implement these things is, is ongoing. Uh, how does this make Donald Trump look? 
Well, um, over and above the bill, over and above what this is all about, just the fact that he threw this out without really vetting it <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then being left with this decision. Yeah, that's the irony. No vetting on the extreme vetting. Um, yeah, so yeah. not very smart. Um, you know, I think there are probably, I mean, I can't speak to, about his, his supporters because uh, I'm not one of them, So, uh, but I can't imagine that this plays badly to them. I think they appreciated uh, Trump's ways that he was saying he was going to get on with things, and I think, you know, trying to get this executive order rolled out immediately was an example of, of Trump's promises to get things done. So I think his supporters would be, you know, gratified by these kinds of um, uh, things that he's trying to get done. But I think um, to those of us who are more critical of these policies, um, both in the United States, in Canada, but also internationally, I think it does make him look really bad. And uh, even people like Prime Minister May of the United Kingdom, who uh, you know was holding his hand when she visited him and was trying to align the UK with the US, I mean, she also came out against um, these measures, these immigration measures. So I think on the international stage, he's getting a, a lot of criticism. Uh, do you, uh, how do you think world leaders are reacting that him taking a second kick at this can? Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, we have our own prime minister who traveled down to the United States and, um, restated Canada's different approach to immigration, but not in a way that was trying to confront the U.S. administration or call them on what they're trying to implement here. So, I mean, I think it will be interesting to see as the next measures unfold whether Trudeau will take a stronger stance or um, continue to not engage with what's going down uh, in the United States. And, and, you know, I would actually quite prefer him to make more of a stand. I think we're in a position of some strength. I mean, we obviously want to keep trade open with the United States, but I think, you know, that Trudeau has a lot of international support and leaders around the world are looking to him. And he's been really uh, riding high on on his uh, public profile internationally. So I think it's a good moment for him to, to speak back against an immigration ban that's also affecting a lot of people, Canadians, dual citizens, permanent residents in Canada, um, and people who are here uh, regularly on visas. And I think um, that's one big reason why Trudeau should speak, speak up about this. Do you think Trudeau's been soft on Trump? I think he has. I wasn't expecting anything more, given that it was their first meeting. Um, I think, you know, to hold his own and to even to stand up and be a little bit um, defiant in that he was holding his own was a, was a good move. And I'm sure the Liberal uh, Party in Canada thinks Trudeau did a good job. But I think as we move forward in this relationship, I think that it has to be more than just tweeting about Canada's, uh, you know, appreciation of social diversity. I think we have to do more than, than just talk amongst ourselves about how uh, we're superior. I don't think that's going to work in the long term. It would be interesting to be a fly on the wall when Trump and Trudeau talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Although having said that, you know, the relationship between the two leaders is important, but a lot of the decision making uh, and the relationship is really what happens amongst the ministers um, who are responsible for different uh, divisions. So the other people as well who are bureaucrats and, in, in, um, you know, in the Can- Canadian and the American administration. So a lot of what the leaders do is actually uh, bring issues to the table that have already been worked out by, by others. Um, so it's not unimportant how, you know, what goes on in the room when the two of them meet, but it's also all the backroom stuff that's really important. Uh, what will this second order look like? 
uh, nobody knows. And what, I think, what, like, why will <laughs> what, why would why did this first one not work? Why will this one work? Right. So I, I will be really interested to see what they come up with to try and make it work. So the big criticism about the first uh, executive order was that uh, in targeting. Um, these seven countries and um, making it impossible for people from those uh, seven countries to um, visit or migrate to the United States for a period of 90 days. Um, that was held to be unconstitutional because it was seen as discriminatory because these are Muslim-majority countries. But under the pretense of national security, which is the rationale under which this executive order was uh, was released, there is no grounds for excluding people from those seven countries because uh, even though Trump says that's where the terrorism is happening, there are, uh, since 9-11, in fact, in the last 20 years, there have been no people from those countries responsible for acts of terror in the United States. And so there's a really big disconnect. And I think the fact that during the election, Trump made it very clear that his extreme vetting uh, he, that he wanted to introduce was uh, for Muslims. It wasn't a country thing. It was hmm. directly uh, against Muslims. And so the, uh, the reasons that the executive order has been stayed is because the courts in the United States have deemed it to be discriminatory and against the Constitution. So it will be interesting to see what measures Trump can introduce to try and get around the very uh, entrenched perception that he has created that he is anti-Muslim. Uh, is, is this, will this just be a softer worded document? Um, you know, Donald, his bark seems to be worse than his bite. Um, you know, um, that can be interpreted many ways, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and I'm certainly not defending him here. Um, but will this just be worded differently? Will it be the same thing, but somehow just with a softer wording that won't make those comparisons you just made so obvious? I think one of the ways that it could be implemented would actually be much broader in scope. So the accusations of discrimination would be harder to read as apparently in an executive order, which means that what might happen is, is for those countries that require a visa to travel to the United States, this does not include Canada or most European countries, uh, we don't require visas to travel there, um, but many other countries require visas, there could be a much broader implementation of what he's called extreme vetting, that in its broad application would diffuse the accusations of discrimination. And I think that's, that may be one way that they try and go about it, is just make it harder for many, many more people to get to the United States. Um, whether that's what they will do, we really don't know, because I think what Trump's been, uh, the game he's been playing is saying, you know, just wait and see what I do. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to keep this all a big secret until yeah. it, it's announced. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, for me sitting in my office here in, uh, in Toronto, I don't know what, what the minds, the great minds that he has working on this are thinking, um, but they, they will be taking seriously um, the criticism that they've received so that they can circumvent that and, and do something else. Uh, how has this affected Canadians? So it's affected Canadians and permanent residents, people living in Canada in all kinds of ways. We've had uh, examples of people who are dual citizens who've been stopped at the border. Uh, we've had examples of dual citizens, um, people who've been born in Canada, uh, but whose parents are from uh, another country, so they retain that citizenship even though they, they themselves were not born there. Uh, we've had examples of um, a student in, in Quebec being stopped at the border. His parents were Moroccan. 
uh, are Moroccan, sorry, and uh, he was born in Canada, but he uh, retains dual citizenship, and he was prevented from traveling to the United States. Um, and that was uh, particularly surprising because Morocco is not even one of the seven countries that's been identified. Um, and so it's been impacting on Canadians quite a lot, and especially um, the real ramping up of the security measures at the border and the requests for phones and phone passwords, as well as passwords on computers, which it is within the jurisdiction of the border guards to ask for. But we've seen much more of that happening now. And really, that could be one thing that, um, that Trump normalizes is that request for your social media handle, for example, um, and also for making it absolutely clear that they are able to ask for passwords on your electronic devices. Hmm. Um, I remember reading a piece uh, when this uh, announcement of the travel ban came out just a day or so after that, and I, I believe it was somebody who was an attorney with the former Bush administration, and they were saying that if this had just been done and the due diligence done on this document, that it would have passed, that it was just so hastily thrown together that it just, you know, it, it, there's no way it would have. Uh, so do you think this will happen? I mean, do you think that this one will go through? Well, I think there are ways, you know, again, that if they made it more broad and less explicitly discriminatory against any one single group, it might have um, more traction. Um, there are probably other things they can do. I'm not an expert on U.S. immigration law. I do know the Canadian laws and the impact on Canadians. Um, so I, I really don't know what are the kind of the loopholes that could be um, could be brought into a new executive order. But clearly there are some because he's got people who have that legal expertise working on these issues as we speak, trying to figure out a way to move forward with the intent and doing so through different kinds of means. Um, there was a rumor floating around that... Uh that, that uh, the Associated Press, well, not a rumor, the Associated <laughs> Press had found a draft memo obtained uh, uh, from the Trump administration that said that uh, they were considering mobilizing the National Guard to round up uh, people. Uh, this is what uh, uh, Press Secretary Spicer said uh, in regard to that, that uh, Associated Press story. To go out and say this, is 100% not true. Like, this is not there is no effort to utilize the National Guard to round up unauthorized immigrants. I don't think you can be any clearer than that. Uh, your thoughts on what that was? Yeah, so, um, I, you know, as much as the Trump administration talks about um, no truth or, uh, you know, th that there's no truth in the news that's being released, I don't trust Spicer and what he's saying. I do think there's probably some grounds for thinking that they have considered bringing in the National Guard. And it wouldn't be unusual. I mean, uh, the Bush, um, George W. Bush brought in the National Guard several times. Uh, different states in the United States have called upon the National Guard in their states uh, to implement immigration um, issues at the border, mostly at the southern border. But we, we have seen this happening, uh, particularly in the last 15 years. So to think that the Trump administration wouldn't do this is, is probably more surprising than to think that they would do it. So I, I really, maybe the numbers are inaccurate about how many National Guard they're going to mobilize, but it would not surprise me especially given 
how much in the last couple of days we've seen um, the immigration and custom officers implement the um, uh, the immigration policies around the border and really the raids that they've had on workplaces and on people's homes and rounding up people to deport them. So that's exactly the kind of support that the National Guard would provide to the immigration and customs enforcement officers. And uh, I, uh, I, I would not be surprised in the least if Trump was not considering, um, w- w- you know, if he was, wasn't considering bringing in the National Guard. And that's a huge worry. I mean, that's a more militarized force that gets brought into play, and it really is, uh, creates, a, notches it up a, another level around the kinds of um, ways that these people are being penalized for being in the United States. Uh, it sounds like something out of World War II, man. It just sounds bizarre. Um, and just to be clear, too, if those National Guard are brought in at the uh, U.S. southern border, there is no reason why they cannot be brought in at the northern border as well. I mean, they have uh, the uh, Customs and Immigration in the United States has jurisdiction 100 miles within their border at the north and the south and east and west, which includes most of the U.S. population in that 100-mile border limit. But we've had examples of the National Guard being deployed also to the northern borders, much more lightly than than at the southern border, but it has has happened. So this will be something that for Canadians crossing the border, uh, driving across the border, this is something that you could encounter in the future if this were to happen. Um, Do you think that uh, the Trump administration has learned anything from this first executive order? Well, I, I would be interesting to see what the polls are saying. I know that Trump was declining; uh, his support was de- in decline. But whether the the kind of the the people that he has relied on to lend him support, uh, the people that he wants to get going at his rally that he's going to have in Florida um, next weekend or this weekend, um, you know, I wonder, you know, how they're understanding the measures that he's tried to enact, and also, you know, whether they are in agreement with Trump that national security is compromised because he's not been able to move ahead. So I think it would be interesting to see um, whether he feels like the kinds of things that he's been doing, even though he's been thwarted in, in full implementation, are helping him uh, with the voters in the United States or whether they're actually he's losing support. I mean, I think for the people who didn't support him previously, there is no reason to support him right now. But whether his, the voters who voted for him think that he's doing the right thing, I just don't know. Uh, I'll play devil's advocate here. I got a couple of people on the phone, and I'm guessing they're thinking the same way. Uh, I'm just trying to read their minds. Maybe I'm wrong. But what about the people that say, well, you know, he's doing what he said he's going to do, and uh, or he said he was going to do, and we've got to make sure that we're safe and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, I think the people who really appreciated the fact that he – they felt that he was going to do what he said he was going to do, we'll, we'll, we'll support him because I think they'll see that he's trying to get things done. So that's why it will be interesting to see what um, the news reports are on, you know, the polls and, and what they're saying about his supporters. Uh, but the thing about the national security um, issue is that uh, there is no correlation between the way that the first executive order was drawn and national security issues in the United States. And I think that's why it's been held up as a discriminatory order, is because it does not at all um, match up with the people who are um, potential you know, terrorist threats. And there were maps coming out of the Washington Post in the United States showing 
um, the disconnect between these countries. And we've had terrorists uh, originating from Saudi Arabia and Egypt, but they are not included in the ban. Mm. And the big question is, well, why not? Well, Trump has properties that are, you know, he has business interest in those countries. And so the national security argument is completely bogus. Um, but again, the supporters who want him to be doing things and putting things into action, I think they'll see uh, that he's trying to do so and will be continue to be um, uh, uh, disgruntled with the way that his uh, actions are being thwarted by the, the justice system. Emily Gilbert has been with us, Associate Professor, University of Toronto. Emily, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, phone lines are open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, uh, Melvin, what are your thoughts? That's crazy. I don't know. She's a professor at, at, at a university, right? Yes. Fascinating. Because I don't... Have you reported any news item with any uh, military forces at the border anywhere? I don't know what you're... What are you talking about? What's your question? Well, no, not, not my question. This woman says that Trump is going to be providing armed forces, military or the National Guard, at border crossings, et cetera, et cetera. No, that's what her. That, she said that's what her fear is, and that was and that was and that was based on the, that was based on the a draft memo obtained by the Associated Press that says that uh, he was considering mobilizing uh, the National Guard. Talk about where is the news being reported? Where is the actual facts that are coming out here? Because I heard her speculating about. He owns property here, he owns property here, he owns... She's not speculating. He owns property in Saudi Arabia. There's no speculation there. I realize that. But I'm trying... You're speculating that he's he's not doing it or calling crimes. I'm not necessarily a Trump supporter, but there's so much inflammatory crap that's out there, misinformation that's out there. So you believe the president rather than the press? Pardon me? So you believe the president rather than the press? I'll put this this to you. Do you think the press is... I asked you a question. Do you believe the press or do you believe the president? In some respects, I believe the press on some instances. In some instances, I don't. Mm -hmm. I think the press has been inflammatory and wrong in situations, and I believe that the president has been wrong in many, many situations. Now, what's the problem? I also also believe that the speculation in the... And and I'll ask you this question, tit for tat here. Do you believe that the uh, Democrats have given him a chance at all? Oh, I think it's beyond that, Jim. No, like, no, 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 or Melvin, I'm I'm sorry. You know, I you know I, I believe. I, hey, I'm I'm all for the the whininess of, of the Democrats and, and the whole way. I mean, the guy's the president. That's the end of story. Let's move on. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll side with you on that. But you know, uh, sorry, Melvin, this guy's doing some pretty wacky crap here. And and and, and you know what? Pointing to the other side, I don't think uh, gets us anywhere. Uh, thanks for the call, Melvin. Really quickly, going to jump uh, jump to Jim. Jim, what are your thoughts on this? Quickly. Well, I definitely have to disagree with your guest in which she phrased that the ban was against one group of individuals. That's incorrect. It's actually against seven individual groups. And the reason why it's against seven individual groups is because it's against failed states. All right. Thanks for the call, Jim. Do you want to one more real quick? Real quick. Let's uh, see what Mike wants. Mike? Uh, Real quick, Mike, what are your thoughts? No, there was good. a lot of speculation and innuendo from your guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the re- it was reported incorrectly that he was going to nationalize or uh, get the National Guard involved. It may not be a stretch to think he would do that, but he hasn't said so. They've incorrectly reported it. 
and and she just goes on about, oh, well, you know, there's a reason why, and I wouldn't be surprised. But he, in fact, didn't do it, so they did, in fact, lie or mislead the public. And her also insinuating that it's because he owns... Pro- he no, 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 no. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. The draft memo obtained by the Associated Press says this. The, the difference is, so the memo's there, the, this does exist. What the Spicer said is that they're not doing this. Right. So if he does it, wait, until he's done it, I have to... Just, until uh, he's done it, like the travel ban, just wait until he does it, then you speak. Well, hey, thanks for the call. Got to run. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, what are you know? There's lots of chat about what our rights are, especially at the border. Um, now that uh, President Trump is in charge, it seems that things are a little tighter along the U.S. Canadian border. What are Canadian rights when you're at the border when it comes to your cell phone? Can, uh, Canadian and U.S. Customs agents can search your phone, your laptop, your electronic devices at will, though the Canadian government has not made public its policies. Uh, comparison between Canada and the United States? Let's bring in Robert Curry, Professor of Law, Director, uh, Law and Technology Institute, Dalhousie University, and on the line with us now. Hello, Robert. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Um, let me ask, We start with this. Do Canadians realize what they can and cannot do at the border with your technology? Uh, so far as coming into Canada goes, I would suspect that they don't. Um, and there would be two reasons for that. One, it's not something people think about very much uh, as they're traveling, and that's that's normal. You know, we're all people who have to get on with our lives. But second... The, uh, the Canadian Border Services Agency has a version of what they say their legal authority is to do under the Customs Act, and they uh, assert that, that version with great authority uh, at the border, whether it's at the airport or otherwise. And people, I would expect, you know, uh, want, to, want to take uh, CBSA agents at their word that they have the legal authority for what they're doing, or at the very least, they don't want to get into an argument with them about it or question them about it. No, I could see that. Everybody probably gets scared every time they go through the border. They just want to get it over and done with as painlessly as possible. Uh, so what are our rights? What can they do as far as technology? Well, that's an interesting question. And the, the short answer is it's unsettled. Now, the Customs Act allows for certain kinds of searches to be done of articles that you have on your person. But the words that are used in the Customs Act to describe articles you have on your person are they're older words, let's mm. say, that are in the law, words like goods in particular. That's the, uh, that's the big one. And so the, the general idea is, first of all, if they have reasonable grounds to suspect that you have evidence you know, of, a, of a crime on you or in your device or on your person, then uh, that, is, that essentially becomes a criminal investigation, you know, and, and they right. can go ahead and do a search on that basis. But for the regular old passing through the airport on your way somewhere level, uh, what the Customs Act says is that they're allowed to do a non-intrusive search on any goods that you bring with you into the, into the country. And CBSA has always said that, well, goods includes cell phones, it mm-hmm. includes, uh, you know, your computer, whatever. There's, there's no distinction there, just like your suitcase and just like your shoes. And the case law, the little bit of case law we've got on the border context supports that. The problem is we are on the tail end of a run of cases from the Supreme Court of Canada, all of which have said, you know, there's an immense amount of personal privacy in our devices. You can discover a great deal about somebody and their life uh, simply by looking into the device. So the, the days of 
analogizing a computer or a, a cell phone to a suitcase or a filing cabinet, those days are over uh, in criminal investigation generally. The border is the place where that, that whole issue hasn't been settled yet. Hmm. Uh, so I, I'm guessing all of the, a lot of these laws, a lot of these procedures were written well before technology took off to the stage that it is now. That's exactly right. Yeah, the Customs Act, you know, would have been drafted uh, probably in the 70s, a lot of it, you know, with a few amendments that, that, uh, that go on through it. But what it doesn't have in it is any specific way to address this, you know, still reasonably new technology, right? Because the, the idea of goods, you know, your shoes that you bring across the border with you or your briefcase, that just does not mesh very well with the way that our electronic devices uh, operate the amount of data that we have on them, and importantly, the amount of data that's accessible by way of the devices as well. So we're in a bit of a legal gray area at the moment. So if I'm coming, say I was in the States, I'm coming back into Canada, and and I'm going through uh, Canadian customs, can they ask me for my cell phone, and what do I do if they do? At the moment, they can. Yeah, they can ask to look through your cell phone. Now, again, we're talking about two different situations. In a situation where they have reasonable grounds to suspect that you are committing a crime or have uh, evidence of a crime on you, then they're allowed, you know, fairly cleanly under the Act to do that search, and that's right. not really a big concern. But simply, you know, the, the basic uh, p- pulling somebody into secondary expe- inspection, you know, which is still a right. basic search, CBSA at the moment is saying, yes, we can ask you for your phone, and we're allowed to search it because the Customs Act says we're allowed to search goods. And if you don't give it up, uh, we can... We can take it from you and search it. They are asserting that authority. Whether they actually have it or not, and whether they have it in, you know, within the very generous limits that they give themselves, that part hasn't been tested. So this is the thing, because nobody wants to get into a, a, a fight or a racket, as we'd say here in the Maritimes, right. uh, at the border. So people are not inclined to fight this through the courts. Ironically enough, the only people who are inclined to fight it are, are criminals, usually. Yeah. Hmm. So with them. if they ask you to, to provide a passcode, you have to do that then? Now, that's, that's a separate issue as hmm. well. That also is not settled uh, either. And for, for some time, CBSA was holding back on that because uh, they were unsure. And this is based on public documents that have been made public. They were unsure whether they have the legal authority to ask for passwords. And last August, it was revealed that the Joint Chiefs of Police in Canada, including the head of the RCMP, feel that they don't have the legal authority to ask you to unlock the device. Because it's, it's a different thing to say, we can search your device, than to say, you have to help us search it. Right. right? Yeah. Those are two mm. different things. Mm. How does our system differ from the United States? Well, the American system, as I understand it, I'm, I'm by no means an expert in, in American uh, law on this point, but... As I understand it, they have a privacy uh, impact assessment that, that they do immediately at the border uh, that's graded in terms of, you know, the kinds of search they're, they're going to do and how intrusive it has to be uh, and, and what, the, what the limits are on their powers. So they're, they're a bit more transparent about that. That said, their powers are very broad. And uh, I think the important thing for Canadian travelers to understand is that when you are standing in U.S. Customs, uh, they, you know, they run their country. You don't have any charter Canadian charter rights that, that you bring with you, or, or otherwise, you are subject to their uh, to their laws. So that's a and they don't have country. to let you in, do they? By no means, no. They no. certainly do not have people. To. Did people realize it's a privilege to be let into another country? It's not a right. I think 
people who travel certainly have a sense that you know there's a there's a sort of a qualification process that you go for, go through. It's it's yeah. very business like, um, but it's really uh, it's much more in the public discourse right now, isn't it? Especially mm. with what's been happening with the executive orders issued by the Trump government. Uh, since you brought that up, and how can we have a conversation without it? Um, how how has the Trump era changed all this? We're certainly hearing that it's more and more difficult for Canadians to cross into the border. Well, I think it depends on the origin of the Canadians. Uh, so far, the the, the big uh, bump on the on the uh, the American side of the border has been that uh, people are getting racially and ethnically profiled and profiled by by way of their religion. So, the the only real toughening up I've heard outside that scope is that uh, people who have criminal records uh, are being stopped more often at the U.S. border and are being refused entry. And that's now there is something that many Canadians don't know, which is that the Canadian government shares all of the information from the Canadian Police Information Center database with U.S. Customs. Mm-hmm. And that includes all everybody who's got a criminal record and also lots of other records of interactions with the police. Uh, does when the Americans decide to step up, you know, uh, I guess. Uh, investigation at the border does that mean that canadians do does it change the way we do things just because they are changing the way they do things i mean the obvious answer is no but does it you know i mean does it make us look at ours more i think it depends on the government of the day to tell you the truth um certainly i haven't uh, detected any reaction from cbsa about uh with regard to letting people into canada that uh, that has much to do with what's happening on the U.S. side. You know, each country has their own individualized uh, yeah. approach. So, so far, there's been no, no uptick that I'm aware of. Are we thinking about this more just because of what is happening in the United States? Is that making us question our policies more? You'd have to ask the lawmakers and the policymakers, I guess. Um, when something's on the front of the radar, I'm sure that uh, in, internally, CBSA is looking at these issues, but you know they they have been uh, formulating their approach to these issues for a long time. So there's no reason to think that there there's any kind of emergency or any scurrying around at this point. Uh, why don't you think there is or has been more clarification on this with the Canadian Border Services? I think because uh, as we discussed earlier, people are not interested in litigating this mm. issue. Because if I'm on my way home from a business trip, I'm entering Canada, and uh, a person wearing a uniform tells me that I should give them my phone and they have the authority to search it, and I know that there's nothing on my phone, there's no contraband in my phone, the last thing I want to do is get into a kerfuffle, a kerfuffle of some kind at the border. Right. right? People don't want it. It's a stressful enough situation, and you don't want to uh, get into it. So we would need someone to actually litigate a case like this. And there have been very few litigated, particularly in the last uh, few years. Why would we have to get to that point? I mean, again, with what's happening in the United States, it certainly put a lot of focus on these procedures now. Uh, Is this not time just for a checkup to to, to maybe update this stuff? I mean, we even talked about this being written well before any of this technology even existed. Yeah, it would be great if the Customs Act could uh, could be amended, could be rewritten. Uh, it would also be great if the CBSA were to be a bit more transparent about their policies and procedures, given that this is a very uh, pressing matter for a lot of Canadians. But their approach has been to uh, to be fairly closed about it for you know what they would say are security reasons. And there's some you know bona fide security interest in not, of course, releasing everything that they do. Right? They they need right. to have investigational techniques that they can use because they're doing a very important job, which is 
which is keeping contraband out of Canada and otherwise protecting Canada from from uh, bad stuff that could, could come in through our borders. But at the same time, it would be useful for some clarification of what the rules are, particularly so that we could have an informed dialogue about it, and we wouldn't have to challenge things by way of court. Say uh, if I was doing this and decided I was going to challenge it, I had nothing better to do with my time and just <laughs> felt like making life more difficult for myself. How would I be making life more difficult for myself? Would the next time I go to the border, a little note pop up on the screen that says, oh, this is the guy that took us to court? Oh, entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, whether that, you know, it would be an abusive process for them to use that information against you. Yeah. Naturally enough. Uh, other than, you know, whatever was legally prescribed by the rules. But are you making trouble for yourself? Yeah, well, you absolutely are. What do they keep record of when you do cross? Um, like, for example, if you've been searched the last time, would they have record of that? If it's, they don't actually make records of all of what we call the, you know, the, the secondary searches mm-hmm. uh, that I'm aware of. Anytime they turn up something that's, you know, that's awry, then a record would be made of that, naturally right. enough. Because the way it goes is when the phones are searched, they ask for the phone, you know, maybe the person unlocks the phone or they open it. They look through it, and they, uh, I will say for CBSA, they are quite restrained in terms of what they look at on the phone. You know, they look at the call records, the emails, the photos, but they, they don't take into bank records. They are not supposed to look into your Facebook account, that kind of thing. Uh, if they happen to find something on the phone that is contraband or that's illegal, uh, then that becomes a criminal investigation right there immediately. Right? And, and nine times out of ten, to tell you the truth, it's child pornography. Mm. Child pornography images that, for whatever reason, people have on their devices and are, are bringing across the border. So that's your, that's your typical scenario. That's what's usually happening. Right. What are, what are our rights when we cross and, and when we're coming back? What info do they collect? I mean, they often ask you when you're go- where you're going, uh, you know, who you're staying with, or you know, your, what your plans are, basically. Do they keep track of any of that stuff? Um, I think sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Now, again, it's, it's difficult to know much about the details of their procedures. Yeah. yeah it, it, it like, I mean, we don't even know that? I, well, I'll tell you what, I don't know that. Yeah. I haven't researched that in great depth. I think there is, it's possible to get a hold of the, of the customs manual that they use just because it's been pried out of them by, uh, by you know, uh, access to information requests and that sort of thing. So there's more information out there that I'm not aware of, but you would have to actively research it. What, uh, so you are going up to the border, you've maybe got the family in the minivan, what have you. What are your rights? What should you do? What should people know? Especially in this day and time. Well, I, you know what? I'm not going to give anybody legal advice to begin with, mm-hmm. um, certainly, because what is important to know is that it's a very different situation if you're a Canadian returning to Canada than if you're a Canadian going into a foreign country. Right. If you're going into a foreign country, you are subject to their laws. If you're a Canadian at the Canadian border, well, then you have, uh, you know, you are protected uh, under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You do have certain uh, uh, rights against, uh, you know, uh, rights to privacy, rights against unreasonable search and seizure and detention and all that kind of thing. But maybe the key point that I can say from the case law is that the border is probably the place in this country where you have the least amount of privacy. Unless you're, you know, out walking around naked in the town in the town square, mm-hmm. uh, the border is the place where you have the least amount of reasonable expectation expectation of privacy. And we say that's a good thing from a policy point of view because 
you know, the border is the place where where people are are being protected mm-hmm. by the CBSA and by the RCMP from from things that could harm us and people that could harm us. Um, I, I can't let you go, uh, Robert, without asking you your thoughts on what's happening with U.S. refugees coming into Canada. We've seen this happen in Emerson, Alberta, also uh, reports of it in Quebec as well. What are your thoughts on that? I think Canada is a, is a light to the nations that way. I certainly approve of our, of our refugee policy. I think our, uh, our authorities, despite the social media chatter you hear to the contrary, our authorities are quite careful in terms of screening people and how they process them. And, uh, you know, a lot of good work is being done. And I think that uh, we should have very serious concerns about the uh, so-called safe third country agreement that we've, uh, that we've struck with the U.S., but that's probably a topic for another day. Hmm. Robert Curry has been with us, Professor of Law, Director, Law and Technology Institute at Dalhousie University. Robert, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.